I got an email update this week from a woman named Stephanie Clark. Some of you may recognize her name. She is the director of Amira, which is, from their website, a faith-based nonprofit organization located in the Boston area that strives to provide a refuge for those seeking to break free from exploitation and heal in community on their journey towards lasting hope. So it's a ministry that's been established here on the North Shore that really is reaching out to help people break free from sexual trafficking and um, in, in our area. Uh, the title of her email was this. It was called Celebrating the First Graduate. And here's what she said. Just 359 days ago, Cassie, not her real name, came into our home and program. Like every woman that comes into our home, she faced trauma, PTSD, doubt, shame, fear, and a host of medical and psychological hurdles. Like every woman in our home, she went through times where she wanted to leave and run back. But, she says, oh, I am so grateful for the but. She persisted and stepped forward in her journey of liberation. Yesterday, we handed her her graduation certificate and watched her move from the safe home to the safe community she has set up for herself. Each woman receives an individualized program when she comes into the Mira home that is tailored to her specific goals and trauma recovery. When Cassie came to us, her long-term goal was to be able to restore the relationship with her family and move back to her home state. We planned out goals with her in every area of her personhood and saw her work hard to achieve those goals. Here is what she was able to do because of your support. This is a letter to those that are supporting. 56 medical appointments, 119 recovery therapy sessions, 114 individual one-on-one sessions, 19 spiritual recovery engagements, 530 hours of vocational training, 40 volunteers who actively interacted in her life, 359 days of safety and freedom in the safe home, and over a year of sobriety, met and days keep adding up. So Stephanie, yeah, that's right, amen, praise the Lord. Stephanie says, I sit back and read through these, knowing the significance of each of these numbers in her life. Cassie was able to engage emotionally where she had never been able to before. She was able to work on so many things that had been triggers in her life. She was able to receive vocational training that she is now utilizing as she moves back to her home state. She is on her journey, and we have done what we are designed to do, be a refuge for her while she begins her journey from exploitation to liberation. Isn't that awesome? Praise the Lord. Now we're in the middle of this series called Revive. We're talking about the big question of can people move God? What does it look like? Can, can, can what we're doing in this world affect what God is doing in this world? And one of the things that we talked about a couple weeks ago is just our brokenness that we see all around us. We had a little ministry time at the end where I asked people to raise their hands. Hey, if you're having a, hitting, a, hitting a tough part in your life, I thought, you know, maybe we get 10 people. And it was like half the congregation is raising their hands to say, man, I need I need some help. I need God to break through in this area of my life. So the question I want to pose today is, what does it take to see this kind of victory that this woman experienced in her life, to see that happen to a whole community, a church, and even more so, a city, and even bigger, a region? What, is, what does it take to see God move and transform a people. So to answer that question, we're going to look at uh, the book of Second Chronicles. 
We're looking at uh, one kind of topic verse that we talked about a couple weeks ago that says, if they humble themselves, my people who are called by my name, and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, and I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. And we're looking at a different king in this book of Second Chronicles of the nation of Israel. This is a long time ago. Uh, but we're going to look at a guy named Jehoshaphat. And write that down if you're thinking about kids' names. Okay? His journey is, is uh, recorded in, in 2 Chronicles 17 to, to 20, and we're just going to uh, look at the last chapter in that. There's a lot of things that happens in his life. So if you've got a Bible, we're going to go to the last kind of section of his life, 2 Chronicles chapter 20. Okay, and if you want to follow along, you can just listen or read on the screen or in your own Bible. It's great. This is 2 Chronicles chapter 20. This is king number two in our series here. Now, if you're following along, sorry, we're going to start at the end of the chapter at verse 31 because it gives a little summary, so sorry, I just wanted to throw that in there. Just scroll down to the bottom with your eyes real quick. It says, thus Jehoshaphat reigned over Judah. He was 35 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 25 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Azubah, the daughter of Shalihi. He walked in the way of Asa, his father, and did not turn aside from it, doing what was right in the sight of the Lord. High places, however, were not taken away. The people had not yet seen, set their hearts upon the God of their fathers. So Jehoshaphat, to give you a little context, he, he probably started his reign somewhere around, for you history guys or girls, 874 to 871 B.C. Depends on kind of what happened with his father. You can read that if you turn a couple chapters back. But overall, he was a good king. He did a good job right from the get-go when he came into, into office, I guess if you call it that, or came into this royal position of being the king. He did make a couple of mistakes. You can read about that in his, in his story. But overall, the story of his life, he's a good king. He's doing good things for the people. He's tearing down you know, idols and, and, and acting reform all through his, his, uh, his tenure as king. So we hear this general summary of his life at the end of his story and uh, He's, he's, a, he's a good guy. It even says his heart was courageous earlier in the book in the ways of the Lord. His heart was courageous. And he even, interestingly enough, he instituted a plan for religious education throughout the nation by appointing officials, Levites, and priests as these public educators to teach the people the law. Really cool thing. It says, you know, and they taught in Judah, having the book of the law of the Lord with them. They went about through all the cities of Judah and taught among the people. So this guy had some forward-thinking ideas. You don't really read about that in a lot of different places. And, and really turning the people, helping the people to turn their hearts to the Lord. And it says the kingdom was strengthened, and there were other nations that were even paying tribute to his nation. So they got, they got some good things going on. All right, now back up to verse 1. Let's enter into the specific story we're going to look at today. After this, or now, now then, the Moabites and Ammonites, and with them some of the Munites, came against Jehoshaphat for battle. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, a great multitude is coming against you from Edom, from beyond the sea, and behold, they're in Hazazon Tamar, that is, En Gedi. Then Jehoshaphat was afraid and set his face to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord. From all the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. All right, so like any good story, we've finished the setting. Here's the conflict. Okay, there's, a, there's three countries all joining forces to attack his country. 
Now, this isn't Jehoshaphat's first rodeo. The chapter preceding this, it talks about this big battle that he was in. They actually lost. Uh, but we know that, you know, he, he, this, is, this, is, this is not his first deal. But they're outnumbered. Okay, they're outnumbered three countries to one. We don't get enough specifics about how many troops they had, but we know it caused fear in him. The location that it talks about, it's only about 15 miles outside of the city. So these, these dudes are coming, and they're finding out late. And it's a massive group, these three countries all joining together. You can see why he might be afraid. They're marching towards the capital of Jerusalem. So this is a big deal. Okay, we're talking about war here, right? They kill your husband, they violate your wife, and they enslave your children. That's what we're talking about back then. This is, this is not some small, nice little skirmish, you know. This is, this is they're coming to conquer and dominate your entire country. Not a pretty picture. So Jehoshaphat leads the people to do two things. To seek the Lord together and to fast. Now, if you don't know what fasting is, if, if, you're, if you're new to church or something, it basically just means you stop eating for a while in some way. Basically to say, this is a serious deal. Because if you don't eat after a while, you die, right? I mean, you have to eat to live. So it's this way to say, this is really serious. I'm going to stop eating to show the seriousness of what is happening. The people assemble together to seek God. We see him bringing the community, this community theme here, in terms of hoping and believing that God could save them, right? They're desperate. So they come together, they fast, and they pray. Now, it's interesting that in this passage, it doesn't tell us that Jehoshaphat assembled the army and got the archers on the walls and, you know, readied the, you know, the food supplies and brought in a bunch of stuff into the city. He may have done some of that, but what it tells us that he did was pray, was bring the people together to seek the Lord. I mean, that's probably not the first thing I would have done. I would have said, all right, let's go. Get the archers on the hill. You know, let's, okay, let's send some scouts out and see how far they actually are away. And, you know, let's, let's you know, secure the area. You know, raise the drawbridge. Fill the moat. You know, put some alligators in there. Okay? He got everyone together. And it says, from all the cities around Jerusalem, they came together and sought the Lord. Maybe the, the group was just too big. They knew they would be defeated. Verse 5. Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah in Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court and said, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might so that none is able to withstand you, which is what we sung about today. Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? And then they have lived in it and have built for you in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, if disaster comes upon us, the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this house and before you, for your name is in this house, and cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and save. And now, behold, here's what's happening right now, God. The men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom you would not let Israel invade when they came from the land of Egypt and whom they avoided and did not destroy. Behold, they reward us by coming to drive us out of your possession, which you have given us to inherit. O oh, our God, will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, 
but our eyes are on you. So here's a few things we see in this prayer. He starts by talking about the greatness of God. By reminding him and all the people listening to him of how mighty God is and what he has done in the past. God rules above all. No one else can stand against him. And just the history of what God had done for the people of Israel. Second, he reminds God of his promises. If you were here two weeks ago and we talked about King Solomon praying in this temple and saying, you know, Lord, after we turn away in all these different ways, please hear prayers, you know, that we pray towards your temple. And God shows up and says, yes, if my people who are called by my name, right, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven. Right? He will hear from heaven. He's, he's, he's saying, God, you promised this to Solomon a long time ago. He's saying, God, you're great. And he's saying, God, this is what you've promised. He's putting it before God and saying, you promised to do this when you talked to Solomon a long time ago. The third thing is he's crying out for justice. He's saying, hey, we treated these people well when we moved through their land coming out of Egypt. We didn't invade them. We didn't try to destroy them. We didn't attack them. And now they're rewarding, you know, our goodness to them with evil. He's crying for justice. And lastly, what is he saying? But a humble cry of utter dependence upon God. He's saying, Lord, we are powerless against this great horde and we don't even know what to do. The only thing we can do is put our eyes on you. See, Jehoshaphat is getting real. He's he's getting real about truth in this moment. This is all hinging upon truth, about who God is, about what he's done in the past, about what he's promised, about justice, and then about his own state of affairs, that they are powerless to bring about salvation. He's praying in truth. All right, let's keep going. So here's what happens. Meanwhile, all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives and their children. So they, they, they kept him in the service the whole time. You know what I mean? They didn't bother him. Sorry, it's a joke there. All right. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, son of Benaiah, son of Jael, son of Metaniah, a Levite of the sons of Asaph. So the Lord comes on this guy in the midst of the assembly. And he said, Listen, all Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, And King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, do not be afraid and do not be dismayed at this great horde, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow, go down against them. Behold, they will come up by the ascent of Ziz. You will find them at the end of the valley, east of the wilderness of Jeruel. You will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm, though. Hold your position and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. O Judah and Jerusalem. Sorry, that was the end of the sentence. Okay. Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them and the Lord will be with you. So then Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground and all Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. Huge worship party. And the Levites and the Kohathites and the Korahites stood up to praise the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. You see, here's the the thing. God responds to the humble prayer of faith. 
God responds when His people pray. He does. The Bible says that when His people pray, God hears and He responds. That is a difficult thing to believe. And I don't think it was easy for them to believe this either. Right? All this stuff happens. They cry out to the Lord. The Holy Spirit comes on this guy and he speaks about, you know, don't be afraid, stand firm, trust me, and gives them some specific you know, directions about go down this little pass and then stand firm in this area. Right? They're not going to have to fight. But this is just a guy saying something. It's just a guy, just a guy that, you know, I don't think they saw some fire cloud from heaven fall or some exploding miracle, probably would have heard about that. Just this guy stands up, they don't hear the perspective of the narrator in the moment that they're living in, and just says, this is what the God's saying. They still have to believe it, and they still have to exit the city and go stand in this valley against this great horde that's about to destroy them. I just want to put you in the story to say, it's still, it's still not like, okay, great, everything's going to be fine. It's like, no, some random dude just stood up and said some stuff, and boy, we're hoping this is true, because otherwise we're all dead. And the people seem to have faith that this is from the Lord, because what do they do? They, they bow down and worship to the Lord. They start praising Him, right? They start worshiping. They say, thank you, Lord, for speaking, Right? But you got to think about what they were thinking about on their beds that night. Okay, wait, what happened? Did that guy really speak that? God's really going to fight for us? Okay, this is a kind of big horde. This is a big army. Okay, if this doesn't happen, we're all dead. They're going to take our wives and our kids. The city's destroyed, right? I mean, that's, you know, that's how it worked. They're laying their heads down wondering if tomorrow the Lord is actually going to make good on what he promised to do. And how often is that the battle for us? Is to, is to trust that will God really show up in my life? Because it feels like he hasn't in the past. Or it feels like he hasn't for my neighbor. It feels like he hasn't for my friend who's, who's, you know, whose parent just died of cancer. Or whatever, whatever it is. This, this, I'm, not, I'm not trying to paint a rosy picture. I'm trying to say this is hard to believe the statement that I'm saying that God responds to the humble prayer of faith. Because so often in our lives, we, we feel like we haven't seen that happen. We haven't seen God showed up when we, we call out to Him. I'm just trying to tell you the people, this might have been their first time ever hearing someone stand up like that and say, God said this, He's going to take care of us. They came from all these surrounding cities. It's not like they're all living in Jerusalem all the time. Or this had ever happened in this person's lifetime. Here's what happened next. They rose early in the morning and went out into the wilderness of Tekoa. And when they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, Judah, and inhabitants of Jerusalem. What does he say here? Believe in the Lord your God and you will be established. Believe his prophets 
and you will succeed. And when he had taken counsel with the people, he appointed those who were to sing to the Lord and praise him in holy attire as they went before the army and say, as we said today, give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. God responds to the humble prayer of faith. Jehoshaphat calls the people to faith. He calls them to, to believe in God by going out. Right? They're demonstrating that they believe, that they trust that God's actually going to take care of this by actually leaving the city and going out to meet these people in battle. It's no small thing. They're risking their lives. They're staking everything on the word that this one guy said while they were praying. Now, I imagine, you know, I imagine that God may have given some more specific instructions than this. Oftentimes the Bible is summarizing what's a very long story. I wonder if God told them, and don't bring any weapons. Just because I feel like God likes to kind of do that sometimes. Just make it a little extra fun on his end to see us squirm a little bit. Not because he's sadistic in any way, but just you'll find out later why in this case. We don't always see. But we know at least that they're carrying some musical instruments or something, right? They're, they're going out to worship. And when we read later on, we're going to hear that they, they were bringing musical instruments back into the city. So let's keep reading and see what happens. Verse 22, when they began to sing and praise, the Lord set an ambush against the men of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah, so that they were routed. For the men of Ammon and Moab rose against the inhabitants of Mount Seir, devoting them to destruction. And when they had made an end of the inhabitants of Seir, they all helped to destroy one another. Great. Thanks for doing that. So in two just quick verses, it just kind of summarizes, and then God took care of everything. As if it's just this afterthought for God to move and to just completely win the day. God responded to prayer. God always responds to prayer. And faith and humility, it's like throwing gasoline on it. Right? It's somehow even more so just builds the, 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 the God's ability, so to speak, for him to respond in our moments. Right? The enemy here is just, I mean, they're just totally routed. They didn't, they didn't, they didn't pick up a sword. They didn't, they didn't, they didn't pull back a bow. They, they didn't do anything. It's just incredible. God does the heavy lifting. That's how it's actually supposed to work. That God does this stuff that we could never do. That's not to say the people didn't have a part to play. They did. God called them to still leave the city. They had to humble themselves. They prayed. They fasted. They trust God, right, by obeying what he, you know, the directions he gave them. But gosh, I mean, you know, who really, who really won the battle here? So, verse 24, when Judah came to the watchtower of the wilderness, they looked toward the horde, and behold, there were dead bodies lying on the ground. None had escaped. When Jehoshaphat and his people came to take their spoil, they found among them in great numbers goods, clothing, and precious things, which they took for themselves until they could carry no more. Here's where you wouldn't have wanted to bring any weapons. More baggage. Right? You're carrying a sword and a spear and a shield. You don't have any arms left to carry all the goods, right? 
So all those people that didn't have faith, they brought their weapons. They, you know, they didn't get as much of the spoil. They were there three days taking the spoil. It was so much. On the fourth day, they assembled in the valley of Barakah, for there they blessed the Lord. Therefore, the name of that place has been called the Valley of Barakah to this day. Then they returned, every man of Judah and Jerusalem, and Jehoshaphat at their head, returning to Jerusalem with joy. For the Lord had made them rejoice over their enemies. They came to Jerusalem with harps. There you go. Some of them were carrying instruments, lyres, trumpets of the house of the Lord. And the fear of the Lord came on all the kingdoms of the countries where they heard that the Lord had fought against the enemies of Israel. So the realm of Jehoshaphat was quiet, for his God gave him rest all around. There's the climax and the conclusion, right? There's the story. What a victory. They didn't have to fight, but they got all kinds of spoil, okay? It's like, you're in prison, okay? And amazingly, these lawyers discover that there has been some mistake in your ruling, and you're set free. And you go out, and you're so happy you buy a lottery ticket. And you win the mega millions on the same day, right? That's what happened right here. It was like the death sentence was lifted, that their entire you know, people would be wiped out and their children stolen, right? And then they won the lottery too. They got all this spoil. Talk about a reversal of fortunes. God responds to the humble prayer of faith. Now, this is long ago and far away, but Jesus makes these same points, or the New Testament does. I don't know if you know the story about Jesus. He compares two guys in prayer. There's this Pharisee that stands up and said, Lord, I thank you that I'm so awesome, and I'm a Pharisee, and this sinner over here, this tax collector guy stinks, and I'm good. And then the tax collector gets on his knees, and he just humbles himself before the Lord and just says, Lord, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, one of those two went home justified today, it was the guy that humbled himself. Jesus makes this same point about prayer. What it looks for prayer that moves God comes from a place of humility. Right? No one can put on airs with God. Right? No one can stand before the Lord and say, I'm, I'm awesome, hear my prayer. We all come up, a prayer that moves God's heart to action is one that is done out of humility. It's being honest about who we really are, and that's amazingly what God is actually looking for. And secondly, I mean, Jesus talks all about faith throughout all the Gospels. But in the book of James, a couple times, you know, James says, hey, ask God for wisdom and believe that you've received it. Don't doubt. Don't be tossed back and forth like a wave or you won't receive it. Then he says in chapter 5, he says, hey, pray for someone that's sick and the prayer that's offered in faith will make the sick person well. I don't have time to pack that whole deal for you, but just to point out that there's something important about faith when we come to prayer. So my point is, if we want to see a move of God in this area, we want to see the story that Amira had multiplied to people in this room and to people all around us, there's a foundation of prayer that needs to be laid. Because guess what? We don't know what to do. I'm just going to confess right here. I'm not, I don't have some grand scheme in the back of my pocket. And I'm saying, okay, we're on step seven. Come April, it's step eight. Look out. Here's Brian's plan, right? To reach the North Shore, to help all of us grow more into Christ. I'm, I'm just making this up as I go along. Right? As I sense the Lord leading us. 
right, as I sense the Lord leading us. And so there's, if there's one thing that, that I want to make sure as a church is not standing in the way of us seeing God move, it's prayer. And so what I mean is, let's, let's, let's be the praying church that we are and pray in such a way that that's, at, least, at least it's not that's the thing that's standing in the way of seeing God move in our midst. All right, so how, how do we grow in this? I mean, you know, what's the, what's the trajectory? You're saying, okay, Brian, you're talking about prayer. You know, you're talking about faith and humility being important. Let me talk about those two things. I really see those as, as key themes to prayer that really is going to see things tr- change, that people transform. We talked about this a little last week because we spent the whole week focusing on humility. But again, the way to grow in humility is just to get real. It's to get real with the people around you, right, about your own life about your own sin. Let me just tell you, one of the things that that marks this church is it's a place where you can get real and it's okay. It's okay to stand up here and say, yeah, sometimes I get angry at my kids when they won't go to sleep at night or when they wake up at 2.36 in the morning and won't go back to bed, especially when it's the night before you're going to preach, right? And you have to deal with that, right? So I'm just just trying to get a little real before you. This is a church where that, it's okay to get real with people. That's why I'm just going to give another plug. I want every person to be in a peer discipleship group, which is a fancy way for saying get with somebody else and talk about what's really going on in your life, pray for each other, and pray for some other people that don't know Jesus. Okay? If there's flyers on that table as you leave on your right, you can start one today. You don't need any real skill. It's not leading a group. It's just you and one or two other people getting real. We want everyone in the church to be doing that. Okay? We all need that in our lives grows humility in us, right? So we don't have to be perfect to come to God and pray effectively. We actually need to be the opposite of that. There's a really interesting statement in the book of James. It says, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. So don't actually do this, but I just want you to think about, if I asked you, are you righteous? Would you raise your hand? I probably wouldn't do that. I don't want to get struck by lightning or anything, right? Most of us kind of doubt our own righteousness before the Lord. Now, the other question, you don't have to raise your hand for this, is but do you believe in Jesus? Eddie does. Come on, Eddie. I love it. Because then you're righteous. That's the good news, guys. The good news is that Jesus did it. Jesus came down and was a sacrifice for us to enter us into a new relationship with God, whereby when God looks at us, he sees the righteousness of Jesus all over our life. See, it's only the unrighteous. The Psalms talk about this. It's only the unrighteous who really are righteous. It's only those that are willing to say, Lord, I can't save myself. I can't even help myself. I need you. I need need a rescuer. I need Jesus. Those are the ones that really are righteous. So what I want you to know today is that when you hear a verse like that that says, 
The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. You're not getting to that point because you're so holy and mature. You're getting there because of your confidence in the righteousness of Jesus in your life. And that's where the second piece of this comes in. Faith, we have misconceptions about this. Sorry about that. It's not that I've got to build up more faith. Jesus says the faith of a mustard seed is all you need. It's recognizing what the faith is in. Right? It's, it's, it's true just belief, even just a little bit, in the bigness and the power and really, beyond all that, is the character of God. Because this whole story, this, all the things we're talking about, it really comes down all to that. It really comes down to the character of God. And if you believe that He is good to you, to you and to the people around you, Because if you don't believe that, what's the point in praying? But even a little bit of faith in the power of God and His love and His character towards you is enough to move the mountains, Jesus says. It's enough. So all of this is to say it's not about us being righteous or holy. It's about us just being humble and saying, I'm not righteous or holy. That makes a really good person of prayer. And it's not about, yeah, and I've got all this faith. I've got tons of faith. It's about, I'm just looking at Jesus. And so I have all the confidence in the world because I trust in his character. Right? Our faith is in a, it's in a person. It's in a person. It's trusting who he is. And so knowing God's character is what is going to lead us to pray. And the last thing I want to mention, too, is this. There's always still a battle going on around us. There's a mystery in this world at all times of, God, I prayed for that person. Why didn't they get healed? Or, you know, I prayed and, and this bad thing happened. And God, you didn't prevent that. We just can't see everything that is going on. We don't understand it all. And so we are in a fight and we don't always win every battle. But what's interesting in this passage is that Jehoshaphat brought the community together. So this is my sense. My sense is, is that the more we come together as a community of prayer, the more we are going to see the wins. Now, there's plenty of examples in the Bible of people kind of going out on their own. Like David, you know, he's got faith to believe they're going to slide this giant, and everyone's saying, no, David, you can't do it. And, you know, he's kind of going out on his own, right? But not here. And I don't think that's really meant to be the standard of how we operate. What if, what if the rest of the nation said, yeah, David, you can do it? I wonder what would have happened. I mean, we don't know. But what I'm saying here is if we become a people of prayer, things will shift, and there will be much more victory in our midst and more the glory of God and his kingdom coming than there would be of just kind of individuals just trying to gut it out and pray. Because you know what? We want to pray for the win for the person sitting next to you. A lot of times we don't have faith for ourselves, but man, I got faith for you. 
I know God loves you, and I can speak that in your life. I know the character of God towards you, and I know he wants a win in your life, and I'm going to pray, and I'm going to call down heaven and the glory of God until we see a breakthrough. We're doing this. It's not just for you. It's for, it's for the people sitting next to you that we want to see some wins here because that's God's heart. Let me just get a little theological on you for one minute. Let's talk for just a second, based on the book of Daniel, chapter 2, what's going to happen in this world. In Daniel chapter 2, he interprets a dream where this big rock hits this statue that represents all these different kingdoms of the, let's see, it was the Babylonians, and then the Medes and the Persians, the Greek Empire, and then the Roman Empire, and then this rock crushes the entire statue, and then it becomes a mountain that fills the whole earth. You know what that is? That's the kingdom of Jesus. And that is happening in our midst, guys. We're not holding out in a world that's getting more desperate and we're scared. The Bible says we are advancing his kingdom, that violent men and women are advancing his kingdom, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, God's kingdom. They're laying hold of it. That mountain is growing and filling the earth. We are the winners on this planet. We get to win. There's a billion people that are saying Jesus is Lord on this planet. It started with 12, 120, and 500. Now we're at a billion. God's kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And Jesus is reigning on the throne of our Father David in heaven right now, enacting his plan to fill this earth with glory as the waters cover the sea. And we're only moving forward. We are not backing down. God's kingdom will only continue to expand until every tribe and tongue and language and people confess that Jesus is Lord. So I don't want to get too eschatological on you. But wouldn't it be interesting if before Jesus came back, every knee bowed and every tongue confessed, not because they were forced to, but because they wanted to, that Jesus was Lord? something to think about this week. So I was talking to Anita before the service today, and Anita was one of the the founding uh, members of uh, the Amira House and helped get things off the ground, and it really uh, started that ministry. And she was just talking about how one of the men that that is kind of partners with them that works for Homeland Security, he's, he's a victim's assistance specialist. And he just said, Basically, the idea is that what has happened with this woman is a miracle. He just kept saying to Anita, like, you know, if I see one person come out of this sex trafficking industry and turn their life around, this will all be worth it. Because he hadn't seen it until then. And he was doubtful about a faith-based organization being able to do it. But you know what? Praise the Lord, there's a victory. Right? And we want more and more of that. Okay? So we're just saying, hey, you know, there's a lot that needs to happen, but the first thing we're going to do is pray, because God responds to the humble prayer of faith. 